Hello and welcome to Conflicted, the history podcast where we talk about the struggles that shaped us, the tough questions that they pose, and why we should care about any of it. Conflicted is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and as always, I'm your host, Zach Cornwell. You are listening to the third and final installment of a three-part series on the 1991 Gulf War. Now, I know I say this every time, but if you haven't listened to parts one and two yet, I'd definitely go check those out first. In those episodes, we introduced our cast of characters, established some important plot threads, and really set the stage for what's about to happen in this finale. Now, full disclosure, today's episode is going to be a long one. In fact, it might be one of the longest I've ever done. Suffice to say, we have a lot of ground to cover today, but I'd still like to take a few minutes and look back at where we've been so far. Last time, in Part 2, The Storm, we opened with the invasion of Kuwait by Iraqi forces in the summer of 1990, as seen through the eyes of passengers on a British Airways flight that touched down for a refueling stop in Kuwait City. And from their porthole windows, they witnessed the opening hours of the attack and were quickly captured and taken hostage by Iraqi forces. From there, we focused on the immediate response to the invasion, specifically from the perspective of U.S. President George H.W. Bush. While initially lukewarm, Bush's view on the situation quickly ossified into an intense determination to confront Saddam Hussein in Kuwait. In the weeks to come, Bush and his administration assembled a sprawling international coalition to oppose what the United Nations labeled an illegal annexation of a sovereign country. Meanwhile, a huge task force of American military personnel was dispatched to protect Saudi Arabia and their vital oil fields from any potential Iraqi attack. Operation Desert Shield, as it came to be known, was an insurance policy to safeguard a huge percentage of the globe's petroleum. We also spent a lot of time with our old buddy Saddam Hussein, as he attempted to navigate the self-inflicted crisis. He had been able to conquer Kuwait in a matter of days, but it had destroyed his reputation in the eyes of almost every government on Earth. As Bush's coalition grew and Saddam became more concerned about a military confrontation, he trapped thousands of foreign workers in Kuwait and kept them as hostages, using them as, quote, human shields. Unfortunately for Saddam, this strategy backfired spectacularly. He was obliged to release the hostages after just a few months of pressure. By the end of 1990, Bush and his coalition had decided that direct military action was the only thing that could evict Saddam from Kuwait. Operation Desert Storm was going to be the instrument of that eviction, masterminded with meticulous detail by the flamboyant American general Storman Norman Schwarzkopf. By early January, all the pieces were in place. The United Nations gave Saddam one last chance to pull his army out of Kuwait, hoping that the dictator might come to his senses. But by that point, it was pretty clear that nothing short of a full-scale military assault was going to do the job. And so, the final deadline for a withdrawal was set at January 15, 1991. If Iraq did not comply and withdraw its army by that date, the coalition would attack. And as the clock ticked down, the world held its breath. And that, folks, is where we left off last time. So, with our minds refreshed and our attention refocused, I think it's time to get started. Before we do, though, I'd like to issue a quick content warning. This episode is going to rely heavily on first-hand accounts from soldiers who fought in the Gulf, which means there's going to be a lot of profanity. Like, a lot. The air will be just as thick with F-bombs as actual bombs, not to mention some pretty harrowing descriptions of violence. Now, I know in the past I've been fairly inconsistent about when I do and do not bleep the curse words out, but I think for the sake of authenticity and respect for the primary sources, those quotes need to remain uncensored. We're all adults here, we can handle it, but if you have kids around, you may want to put some headphones in. 
So, without further ado, let's land this bird properly. Welcome to the Gulf War 1991, Part 3, Land of Darkness. It's the morning of February 28, 1991. We're on a lonely stretch of highway in southern Iraq, about 70 miles from Kuwait City. In this part of the desert, nothing moves. Nothing but flat, endless beige in every direction. A dead horizon under a cloudless, milky blue sky. But suddenly, at about 9.30 in the morning, something breaks the stillness. A U.S. military Humvee speeds down the highway kicking up clouds of sand and grit and dust. And cramped into this Humvee is a small group of journalists, grumpy writers and dehydrated photographers, hoping to catch a final glimpse of the ground war unfolding across the Persian Gulf. And one of these journalists is a 28-year-old photographer for Time magazine named Ken Jareski. Seven weeks earlier, when the United Nations deadline had elapsed and Operation Desert Storm was unleashed against the Iraqi army, Ken Jareski and journalists like him enthusiastically leapt into the war zone, hoping to capture the perfect shot or a career-making story. But so far, Ken has come up short. After seven weeks of war, his camera rolls are as dry as the Kuwaiti desert. Beautifully composed but ultimately dull shots of sullen prisoners, smirking soldiers, and dusty trenches. All but indistinguishable from the same tripe everybody else has been getting in the Gulf. One picture after another, Jareski observed, of a sunset with camels and a tank. The problem is not one of talent, but of access. Since the war began, the U.S. military has imposed tight, draconian controls on the media in the Gulf. Divided into press pools and shadowed by chaperones at every waking moment, the 1,600 Western journalists covering Desert Storm feel more like kindergartners on a field trip than documentarians on the front line. And as the Humvee rumbles across the desert, Ken Jareski knows that the war is pretty much over. A ceasefire is about to be declared. He'll have to go back to his editors at Time magazine with a boring roll of redundant fluff. The first American war in a generation, and barely anything to show for it. But what Ken does not know is that today, on February 28th, he is going to take the most famous picture of his entire career. A single shot that will become the defining image of the Gulf War. As the Humvee whips down the empty highway, its driver catches sight of something. They squint through the blinding monotony of the landscape, and eventually it comes into focus. In the middle of the road is a single truck, an Iraqi truck. From a distance, it looks abandoned, but as they get closer, they begin to see shapes scattered across the asphalt. Dead bodies, about half a dozen or more. The Humvee rolls to a stop, and Ken Jareski leaps out of the passenger seat, camera in hand. As he approaches the vehicle, he spots a corpse splayed on the ground. It is, or was, an Iraqi soldier. But now, it's just a bag of meat, liquefying under the Arabian sun. As he gets closer, Ken notices a red, white, and blue can of Pepsi next to the soldier's leg. He takes a mental note of the oddly humanizing detail, snaps a picture, and keeps walking. The next body he finds is another dead Iraqi soldier, 
The man is lying on his back, looking up towards the sky with a calm, almost serene expression. In death, the soldier looks peaceful, even, quote, handsome, according to Ken. But below the neck, he is nothing but a pile of charcoal, a man-shaped clump of embers. The American bombs that killed him had disintegrated his body, but somehow left his face perfectly intact. Ken snaps a picture and keeps walking. Finally, Jureski arrives at the truck itself, the lone Iraqi vehicle in the middle of the road. And as Ken examines the warped frame of the truck, he sees something sticking through the front windshield. It is yet another body, scorched and blackened from head to toe, frozen in a pose of panic. As the writer Tori Rose DeGette described, quote, Fire has destroyed most of his features, leaving behind a skeletal face fixed in a final rictus. He stares without eyes. Clearly, this man, this Iraqi soldier, had been trying to escape the burning vehicle when he died. As Jureski recalled, quote, You could clearly see how precious life was to this guy because he was fighting for it. He was fighting to save his life to the very end, till he was completely burned up. He was trying to get out of that truck. It was, of course, impossible to know the man's full story, his rank, or even his name. As DeGette writes, quote, He might have been devoted to the dictator who sent him to occupy Kuwait and fight the Americans. Or he might have been an unlucky man with no prospects, recruited off the streets of Baghdad. Ken snaps a picture of what's left and returns to the Humvee. As he walks back, the Army public affairs officer traveling with the press pool the chaperone, expresses his disapproval of Ken's photojournalism, saying, quote, What do you need to take a picture of that for? Ken responds, quote, I'm not interested in it either. But if I don't take pictures like these, people like my mom will think that war is what they see in movies. Eventually, Ken and the other journalists pile back into the Humvee and continue down the network of roads towards Kuwait City. But as they get closer to the capital, the landscape begins to change. Instead of an empty road, they see a six-lane highway filled with burnt and twisted vehicles. Mile after mile of cars and tanks and limousines, bulldozers and fire trucks and milk vans, hundreds if not thousands of Iraqi vehicles turned inside out by American bombs, their mechanical guts unspooled across the asphalt. These are the remnants of Saddam Hussein's forces in Kuwait. This is all that's left of the fourth largest army in the world. An entire convoy dead and rotting in the sun. Before the Gulf War, this desert road was known as Highway 80, but afterwards history assigned a new moniker to it. The Highway of Death. Ken's photograph of the burned man in the truck made its way back to his editors at Time magazine in New York. It was a stunning, visceral piece of photojournalism, easily on par with the Pulitzer Prize-winning shots that came out of Vietnam in the 60s and 70s. But the managing editor at the magazine decided not to publish it. Time is a family magazine, he explained. In fact, Ken's picture would not be used by a single American publication or news outlet in the weeks to come. The public, they reasoned, didn't need to see that. Other international outlets did run Ken's picture, though. The Observer in London and Liberation in Paris published the photo almost immediately. The image, writes Tori Rose de Guette, was not entirely lost. The photo of the burned Iraqi soldier would eventually become one of the most iconic images of the war. But the editorial squeamishness of the American press never sat right with Ken Jureski. As he wrote months later, quote, If we're big enough to start a war, we should be big enough to look at it. 
But the road to that moment, the road to the highway of death, and the near-total annihilation of Saddam Hussein's forces in Kuwait had begun seven weeks earlier, on January 15, 1991. That day, in Washington, D.C., President George H.W. Bush spent the last restless hours before the U.N. deadline elapsed walking. He walked and walked and walked, and then he walked some more. And as the lanky commander-in-chief prowled the pristine green of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, he could not help but reflect on what he was about to do. He was about to send people, young people, to their deaths. And as the clock ticked down closer and closer to the deadline that would make war inevitable, Bush's thoughts might have drifted back in time, back to his own near-death experience as a pilot in World War II. In September of 1944, Bush had been shot down by Japanese anti-aircraft fire while on a bombing mission in the Pacific. Even now, he could remember it all. He could remember the panic and the parachute and choking on seawater, but most of all, he remembered his two crewmates who did not make it out of the crash. And now, almost 50 years later, it was his turn to send pilots into the teeth of enemy fire. As he confided in his diary, quote, It's my decision. It's my decision to send these kids into battle. It's my decision. People keep coming up and saying, God bless you. My mind is a thousand miles away. I simply can't sleep. I think of what other presidents went through. The agony of war. Eventually, the clock struck midnight, and January 15th became January 16th. And still, Saddam Hussein's army had not left Kuwait. Now it was official. Bush's coalition, the fragile alliance of nations that he had flattered and bribed and cajoled over the past six months, was now at war with Iraq. For all intents and purposes, the world was at war with Iraq. And now all the president had to do was pick up the phone and give the order. To say the words and tip the domino that would trigger the death engine, that immense choreography of killing that the U.S. military had been rehearsing for months. And for the men and women who were about to do that killing, it was a big moment too. As the pilot Buck Wyndham reflected in his journal, quote, Here it is the United Nations deadline for Iraq to remove their forces from Kuwait. The news reports said that there were large, noisy anti-war protests in Chicago and San Francisco yesterday. I suppose that's just a small percentage of the U.S. public opinion showing itself, but it's still disappointing. I have a tough time understanding why people oppose the eviction of a patently evil dictator from an innocent neighboring country that he invaded, pillaged, and illegally annexed. Shortly after the U.N. deadline elapsed, Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney received word from the president. Operation Desert Storm was clear to proceed. For the next few hours, it was out of Bush's hands. All he could hope to do was occupy his mind with other concerns. As he told his aides, quote, Let's get some meetings on the economy or something else. Far away in Iraq, someone else was having a sleepless night. Tucked away in one of his innumerable Baghdad safe houses, armored in layer after layer of guards and guns and body doubles, Saddam Hussein was preparing to die. All his life, Saddam had been a gambler. He gambled with his own life and the lives of others. He'd gambled on the weakness of his enemies and the strength of his own stomach. And time after time, the roulette wheel of fate had landed on his lucky number. But this time, things were different. This time, he had picked a fight he could not win. As he confided to one diplomat at the time, quote, I know I'm going to lose. At least I will have the death of a hero. 
After all, what choice did he have? What option was there except to stand and fight? To the pundits on CNN and CBS, it seemed inconceivable that the dictator of Iraq, facing the combined military might of the world's last superpower and all its faithful friends, wouldn't just back down. Was he suicidal? Was he insane? Why wouldn't he just pack it up and go home? After all, how hard would it be to pull his troops out of Kuwait, take the slap on the wrist, and let the world go back to the way it was? They do not understand, Saddam thought. For him, there was no going back. This was existential. It was stand and fight or roll over and die. As Ephraim Karsh and Anari Rautzi write in their biography of Hussein, quote, Wherever he looked, the choices seemed bleak. Unconditional withdrawal would most probably damage his position beyond repair. The economic plight which pushed him to occupy Kuwait had not only remained, but had been significantly aggravated by the sanctions. Iraq's political system had not become kinder, and the nation's patience with its leader would soon be running thin. Plots were certain to lurk around each corner. Saddam's mind had been made up. War, it is true, would not have been his first choice. However, caught between the hammer and the anvil, between the certain demise attending an unconditional withdrawal and the hazardous opportunities and possible rewards offered by an armed confrontation, the choice seemed self-evident. End quote. For the cameras, however, Saddam was all tough talk and big smiles. He assured an apprehensive Iraqi public that when the, quote, mother of all battles arrived, their country would emerge victorious. But privately, he seemed torn between denial and defeatism, unable to reconcile the competing impulses of fear and pride. The terrible truth was, he didn't honestly know if he'd even be alive a week from now. And as the United Nations deadline came and went, all Saddam could do was hunker down and prepare to weather the storm. 800 miles south, in the Saudi capital of Riyadh, the architect of Saddam's destruction was putting the finishing touches on his masterpiece. Forty feet beneath the earth, in a windowless bunker filled with maps and screens and satellite feeds, General Norman Schwarzkopf gathered his lieutenants and dispelled his doubts. George H.W. Bush may have been the commander-in-chief, but down here, in what historian Rick Atkinson described as the general's, quote, fluorescent netherworld, Stormin Norman Schwarzkopf was God. And he could be a cruel, exacting God. Mistakes were punished, ambiguity was lambasted, incompetence was a four-letter word. As Atkinson writes, quote, Even for men who had seen horrific bloodletting in Vietnam, no Asian jungle was more stressful than the endless weeks they spent in Norman Schwarzkopf's Riyadh basement. End quote. But now, after all that time, after months of meticulous planning and vicious inter-service debate, Operation Desert Storm was ready. Every I had been dotted, every T had been crossed, every X had been marked. After 20 long years, after all the slander from the press and second-guessing from the politicians, the stain of Vietnam was about to be scrubbed from the uniform of every military man and woman in America. Schwarzkopf's final words to the troops in the operation were characteristically curt and to the point. Quote, Soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines of the United States Central Command, our cause is just. Now you must be the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. May God be with you, your loved ones at home, and our country. When he was done, Schwarzkopf extended his mighty hand and clicked a button on a tiny cassette player. In a scratchy, warbly tone, the song God Bless the USA filled the bunker. Privately, the general considered the song cloying and, quote, blatantly chauvinistic, but it seemed to fit the moment, and his boys needed the boost. 
Even still, the confidence in Riyadh was palpable. As the pilot Buck Wyndham reflected, quote, The plan was masterful and powerful, and it occurred to me that if all went well, we absolutely could not lose. And so, on January 17, 1991, 26 hours after the UN deadline had elapsed, Operation Desert Storm began. It was a cold, clear night in Baghdad. Most of the city, about 4 million people, were asleep, the confident proclamations of their dictator still ringing in their subconscious. But just before 3 o'clock in the morning, an odd sound broke the silence. It was barking. All the dogs were barking. All across the city, mutts and pets and street hounds started howling at something up in the sky. Their owners stumbled out of bed and quickly realized that something was very, very wrong. After months of tension, after all the threats and sanctions and dreadful anticipation, the Americans had arrived. Thirty seconds later, the city erupted in light and sound. Thousands of Iraqi anti-aircraft batteries began firing blindly into the black. As Rick Atkinson writes, quote, In vivid fountains of red and orange and gold, anti-aircraft fire boiled up with an intensity that initially mesmerized more than it frightened. Missiles corkscrewed skyward or streaked up on white tubes of flame. Anti-aircraft rounds, 57mm, then 100mm, burst into hundreds of black and gray blossoms. Scarlet threads of gunfire stitched the air, woven so thick as to suggest a solid sheet of fire. Yet for all its volume, the shooting seemed unguided. The Iraqis were flinging up a random barrage in hopes of hitting something. An Iraqi woman named Nuha al-Radi remembered her experience on the outskirts of the city. Quote, I woke up at 3 a.m. to the barrage of exploding bombs. I let out a huge groan that I can still hear. I couldn't believe that the war had started. I went out on the balcony, and the sky was lit up with the most extraordinary fireworks display, and the noise was beyond description. My dog, Salvador Dali, was chasing frantically around the two houses, looking up at the sky and barking furiously. End quote. In downtown Baghdad, a trio of CNN reporters who had been covering the run-up to the war provided the first televised reactions to Desert Storm. This is, uh, something is happening outside. Um, the skies over Baghdad have been illuminated. We're seeing bright flashes going off all over the sky. The view from downtown Baghdad seemed to be pure chaos, but the coalition's opening salvo had been choreographed down to the smallest detail. Fifteen minutes earlier, an attack squadron of Apache helicopters, swooping through the pitch black in complete radio silence, descended on Iraq's early warning radar stations. Within seconds, they punched a 20-mile gap in Baghdad's defensive perimeter, and through that gap poured hundreds upon hundreds of American aircraft. Nighthawks and F-15s and B-52 bombers streamed into Iraqi airspace. And as they approached the city, the glow of its lights became visible from the air. This does not look like a city that's hunkered down and ready to be bombed, one pilot commented. It's lit up like Las Vegas out there. And then all of a sudden, every gun in the place goes off. I didn't know there were that many bullets in all the world. End quote. The coalition pilots flew through a hailstorm of flak and bullets and missiles, but for all the sound and fury... The Iraqis weren't hitting anything but cloud vapor, and they could not stop the thousands of bombs that were plummeting down towards their city. And onto these bombs, the American crews had painted messages that their targets would never see. Messages like, special delivery for Saddam, and 
the cure for arachnophobia. The citizens of Baghdad watched as flames bloomed across their city's skyline. Key government buildings, including the Ministry of Defense and the Presidential Palace, were transformed into smoking crags of concrete. Meanwhile, Tomahawk missiles launched from American battleships in the Gulf targeted the city's electrical grid. The missiles broke open mid-flight before impact and scattered long spools of carbon filament that short-circuited the generators. To the untrained eye, it would have looked like the sky was full of Christmas tinsel. As historian Jim Corrigan describes, quote, Thousands of wriggling carbon snakes now descended on five generating plants around Baghdad, creating showers of sparks and sizzling blue arcs before the system seized. Block by block, Baghdad went dim, lit only by the burning government buildings and the staccato flash of artillery. End quote. Shortly after that, we lost all electricity, remembered Nuha al-Radi. The phones followed suit and went dead. I think we are done for. A modern nation cannot fight without electricity and communications. For everyone in Baghdad, Americans above and Iraqis below, January 17th was a very, very long night. Some coalition soldiers could hardly believe it was happening at all. I didn't think it would happen, one Marine commented. All those deadlines, all that talk. It's a real motherfucking war. Bombs and shit. On the first night of the war, the military might of the coalition had been amply demonstrated. But as the sun rose over Baghdad the next day, Saddam Hussein revealed himself to be alive, well, and defiant as ever. As he sneered in an open letter to Bush, quote, If you are hoping that Iraq will yield to you after the airstrikes, then you are deluding yourself. The air war had begun, and for everyone involved, there were many long nights ahead. But back in Washington, D.C., George H.W. Bush was starting to relax. He was getting updates every hour on the hour from Riyadh, and the picture beginning to form was one of unmitigated success. Of all the hundreds and hundreds of American planes that had flown into the jaws of Baghdad's defenses, only one had been shot down. And for an old World War II pilot like Bush, casualty figures like that were nothing short of miraculous. Operation Desert Storm had only just begun, but all things considered, President Bush was feeling pretty dang good. Euphoria was the word he used in his diary. That euphoria, however, would not last. A few hours later, Bush received an urgent message from his national security team. They had a new problem, a big one. Saddam Hussein had launched missiles at Israel. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. It's January 18th, 
1991, less than a day after the coalition's first attack on Baghdad. We're in the city of Tel Aviv, the cultural and commercial capital of Israel. Nestled on the Mediterranean coast, with its breezy beaches and picturesque skyline, Tel Aviv feels very far away from the war raging in Iraq and Kuwait. Seabirds are cawing in the sky, bikes are zipping down the alleyways, and street food is sizzling in the stalls. In other words, it is just a normal day, and most Israelis are trying very hard not to think about Saddam Hussein or George Bush or Operation Desert Storm. But then, the first Iraqi missile falls on the city. Buildings shake, windows shatter, and people start screaming. And just as the smoke begins to clear, another missile falls. Then another, and then another. Before long, the sounds of seabirds have been replaced by the wail of ambulances and police sirens. Israel has been attacked. And when Israel is attacked, it goes to war. In the roughly 50 years since its creation in 1948, Israel's core defense doctrine had been one of deterrence. If you hit us, we'll hit you back so hard and so fast that you'll regret ever pulling the trigger in the first place. And for the most part, that strategy had worked. Israel developed a reputation as a small but scrappy enemy, willing to go as far as necessary to ensure its survival. Most Arab governments, including Saddam Hussein's, did not recognize Israel's right to exist, but they could not deny its resilience and zeal. Some even lived in fear. As the Saudi monarch, King Fahd, confided to appear, quote, Israel is our number one nightmare. It has 200 nuclear warheads and 47 atom bombs. Its people are crazy. End quote. And so, when Iraqi missiles careened into Tel Aviv, it was all but assured that the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF, would unleash a blistering retaliatory strike. And that is exactly what Saddam was hoping for. Back in the fall of 1990, Israel had not been invited to join George H.W. Bush's coalition against Iraq. And there had been a very specific reason for that. Most Arab nations, including, most crucially, Saudi Arabia, would absolutely 100% never, ever, ever agree to join any alliance that included Israel. The enmity was too old, the baggage was too heavy, the hatred was too deep. By lobbing ballistic missiles into Tel Aviv, Saddam was setting a trap. He was hoping to force Israel's hand, to bait them into joining the war, which would in turn fracture the carefully assembled coalition. As historian Jim Corrigan writes, quote, Experience told Saddam that any attack on Israeli soil would draw a swift counterattack, thus making the Jewish state a de facto member of the coalition. Arab nations would suddenly find themselves allied with a sworn enemy in a war against fellow Arabs. The coalition would disintegrate. End quote. Back in the United States, the Pentagon was in panic mode. Our biggest concern, growled Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Colin Powell, is that the goddamn Israelis are going to come into the war and the coalition's going to fall apart. George Bush agreed, writing in his diary that very same day, quote, The big problem is how to keep Israel out, and it is going to be almost impossible. Cheney wants to let them go and go fast, just get it over with. Yet for all the terror they provoked, the weapons that Saddam had launched at Israel were crude and antiquated. They were projectiles based on an old-school Soviet design, commonly known as the Scud missile. That's S-C-U-D, Scud. Now, Scud may sound like the name of a schoolyard bully or a venereal disease, but in reality, it is a 40-foot ballistic missile capable of traveling 400 miles in any direction. At that range, Iraq could hit almost any city in the Middle East. Riyadh, Tehran, Kuwait City, Jerusalem, you name it. 
But the Scud had an Achilles heel, and that Achilles heel was accuracy. The Scuds were not guided by heat or satellite or lasers. Essentially, they were the ballistic equivalent of closing your eyes and chucking a dart at the board. As General Schwarzkopf commented, quote, Saying that Scuds are a danger to a nation is like saying that lightning is a danger to a nation. Frankly, I would be more afraid of standing out in a lightning storm in southern Georgia than I would be standing out in the streets of Riyadh when the Scuds are coming down. End quote. As they say, lightning never strikes twice. But Iraqi Scuds had struck six times in one day. And the Israelis were not about to let it happen again. American diplomats spent the opening week of the air war begging, pleading, and placating in an effort to keep the IDF from launching an attack and splintering Bush's coalition. As one American assured his Israeli counterpart, quote, We are going after the Scuds full bore. There is nothing that your Air Force can do that we are not already doing. If there is, tell us and we'll do it. We appreciate your restraint and please don't play into Saddam's hands. Ultimately, the Israelis agreed to hold their forces back for now. But they were deeply resentful of the situation. As one Israeli politician said at the time, quote, I feel like a small child who has been told to sit in a corner and behave. Across the Arab world, some people felt that the Scud attacks against Israel were long overdue, justified even. As a Palestinian housewife told a journalist, quote, Let them give the Israelis a taste of what they have been inflicting on us for years. But Scuds were not just a concern for Israeli civilians. American soldiers in Saudi Arabia soon became intimately familiar with the four-letter word. The threat of a Scud missile dropping onto a sleeping barracks or a crowded mess hall was ever-present. American soldiers lived in fear of that one lucky shot, what pilots like to call the golden BB, that would fall from the sky and incinerate them in their beds. With the constant drills and warning sirens, Scud became a synonym for anxiety and exhaustion. As the Marine Anthony Swafford remembered, quote, once the air campaign begins, I never sleep through the night. Three hours is the longest stretch of uninterrupted sleep I experience. If a scud alert doesn't interrupt our sleep, someone screaming from a nightmare or wide-awake anger and fear will awaken the entire hooch. End quote. Ultimately, the biggest problem with the scuds was finding them. While American bombers pounded Iraqi positions and cities day and night, they also desperately searched for the mobile launchers that Saddam's army used to fire the missiles into Israel and Saudi Arabia. But finding a Scud launcher in the open desert was a bit like finding a needle in a needle stack. The Iraqis could park their trucks, launch a Scud, and be gone in six minutes. Shoot and scoot, the Americans called it. It is anybody's guess, Anthony Swafford observed, how many launchers are actually combat capable. Naturally, the vain and fruitless Scud hunt took its toll on the pilots as well. As Buck Wyndham wrote in his journal, quote, Now I am really pissed off. Saddam's Scud missile crews certainly know how to interrupt a night's rest. The alarm red siren seemed particularly loud and annoying tonight. The first few seconds after it blares across the base and wakes you up are like a 10,000 volt shock of AC power flowing directly into your brainstem. I cannot wait to fly again. I'm going to get those bastards. You do not screw with me when I'm sleeping. Israel's restraint had, quote, shuffled Saddam's cards, as one historian put it, but the dictator was determined to continue baiting the Americans, peppering them and their regional allies with scuds in an attempt to provoke a full-on ground offensive. Saddam, in his own way, was not stupid. He knew that he could never win a fight against the United States military, but if he could bleed them dry and conjure up that old Vietnam feeling he might be able to force a ceasefire. According to Karsh and Routsey, quote, 
Saddam's war strategy was geared towards a single goal, drawing the coalition into a premature ground offensive in Kuwait that would bring the war to a quick end, even at the cost of many Iraqi lives. Such an encounter offered him his best chance of inflicting heavy casualties on the Allies, thereby driving the disillusioned Western public opinion to demand an early ceasefire. End quote. General Schwarzkopf and his lieutenants wisely chose not to take the bait. For now, the only Americans fighting in Iraq and Kuwait would be doing so from the cockpit of a plane. And despite the constant threat of Scud attacks, life for American soldiers in Saudi Arabia assumed its own kind of rhythm, its own kind of ugly normalcy. To pass the time, they played volleyball or soccer or solitaire. They watched movies on the VCR and scribbled letters back home. Some soldiers even formed bands to play live music for each other. Buck Wyndham remembered playing a small concert at one point, quote, The audience seemed to really like us. The crowd favorite was clearly our version of Eric Clapton's song, Cocaine, sung with new lyrics and entitled, Hussein. One verse was, There's a man in Iraq, his mind's off the track, Hussein. He's a leader of fools, he don't play by the rules, Hussein. Are you blind, are you blind, are you blind? Hussein. Ultimately, the U.S. soldiers did anything and everything they could to keep their minds off the unrelenting discomfort of soldiering in the Arabian desert. And it wasn't easy. The showers were freezing, the food was freeze-dried, and the sand was everywhere. As Anthony Swafford wrote, quote, The desert is in us, one particle at a time. Our boots and belts and trousers and gas masks and weapons are covered and filled with sand. Sand has invaded my body ears and eyes and nose and mouth, ass crack and piss hole. The desert is everywhere. The mirage is everywhere, awake, asleep, high heat of the afternoon, or the few soft sunless hours of early morning, I am still in the desert. The drudgery of it all would have been slightly more bearable if they'd been able to enjoy some of the creature comforts of home, but that too had been stolen by the desert. At the outset of Desert Shield the previous fall, Storman Norman himself had ordered a complete and total ban on alcohol, gambling, and pornography. It was a directive designed to placate the extremely conservative Saudis, but American soldiers still resented being marooned in what they called the, quote, land of no fun. And not only was Saudi Arabia devoid of fun, it was absolutely crawling with pests, scorpions and snakes and hand-sized camel spiders. But the most hated pest of all carried a notebook, a tape recorder, and a press badge. Operation Desert Storm was the first real war in a generation, and the Western media did not want to miss their chance to document it. 1,600 journalists had massed in Saudi Arabia, Rick Atkinson writes, roughly four times the number in Vietnam during the late 60s. Unlike Vietnam, however, where reporters could roam unescorted into the field and file uncensored dispatches, in the Gulf, they were subject to controls, similar to those imposed during the Korean War and World War II, end quote. The wretched experience in Vietnam had taught the U.S. military to be extremely distrustful, bordering on hostile toward the press. Old war dogs like Schwarzkopf harbored the notion, writes journalist John MacArthur, that, quote, an uncensored American press had lost the Vietnam War by demoralizing the public with unpleasant news. And it was not a new sentiment. One assistant to President Lyndon B. Johnson had famously complained that coverage from a particular journalist had been, quote, more damaging to the U.S. cause than a whole division of Viet Cong. After all, nothing kills enthusiasm for a war like dead bodies on the TV screen. As one Navy public affairs specialist put it, quote, when relatives of servicemen see their boy 
or someone who could be their boy, wounded or maimed in living color through imagery right in front of them, that tends to erode their support for the government's war aims. This time, the Pentagon decided things would be different. The press would be tightly controlled. Every syllable, every pixel, every drop of ink coming out of the Persian Gulf would be vetted and approved by the U.S. military. No more snooping reporters, no more embarrassing exposés, no more demoralizing pictures of dead or dying Americans. To borrow an old crude saying, the press were to be treated like mushrooms, fed shit, and kept in the dark. And that disdain for the press trickled all the way down to the rank and file, as the pilot Buck Wyndham admitted, quote, We weren't exactly enthusiastic about talking to them. Most military pilots consider journalists, especially journalists in a war zone, a distraction at best and a potential liability to national security at worst. Most of us don't really like having outsiders around while we're just trying to do our jobs, especially outsiders who might get the story wrong or misquote us. I mean, a misquote in print is forever. And because of this attitude, we gave what must have been some of the least helpful interviews ever suffered by representatives from the National Public Radio, the Washington Post, Cox Wire Service, and the Associated Press. I felt kind of sorry for them. End quote. Any soldier that was too forthcoming with the press was quickly reminded of the potential consequences. As the NBC correspondent Gary Matsumoto recalled, quote, Whenever I began interviewing a soldier, this press attaché officer would stand right behind me, stare into the eyes of the soldier, stretch out a hand holding a cassette recorder, and click it in the soldier's face. I mean, this was patent intimidation. Anthony Swafford remembered an argument between a fellow Marine and his sergeant on the subject of talking to the press. Quote, Kuhn, that's the name of the soldier, says, This is censorship. You're telling me what I can and can't say to the press. This is un-American. And then this is Swafford talking. As we begin arguing about the gag order, Staff Sergeant Seek arrives. He says, You do as you're told. You signed the contract. You have no rights. You can't speak out against your country. We call that treason. You could be shot for it. God damn it, we are not playing around. Training is over. I'm sick of hearing your complaints. Tell your complaints to Saddam Hussein. See if he cares. End quote. It was a far cry from the fist-pumping ads and feel-good slogans that had attracted would-be recruits in the first place. Be all that you can be. So it makes me feel like I'm part of something really special. Be all that you can and I'm not the only one. U.S. soldiers were expected to be all they could be, but forbidden from saying all they could say. No, in Riyadh, there was only one man doing the talking, one voice ringing loud and clear and confident across the airwaves back to the United States. And his name was General Norman Schwarzkopf. With his flamboyant style and football coach demeanor, Desert Storm could hardly have asked for a more magnetic spokesman. This was a man, writes Rick Atkinson, who could, quote, swagger sitting down. The general was, quote, the most theatrical American in uniform since Douglas MacArthur. One Newsday writer even speculated that Storm and Norman might be in the running for sexiest man of the year, 1991. Striding into the press room in crisp desert fatigues, Storm and Norman was the redemption of America's military made flesh for the cameras. Armed with an array of charts and maps and video footage, Schwarzkopf dazzled the press corps day after day, translating arcane army jargon into digestible snippets for the folks back home. While American planes turned Iraqi tanks into scrap metal, Schwarzkopf transformed bone-dry strategy into damn good television. The Riyadh press conferences became, one writer observed, quote, 
Nintendo military briefings. As Jim Corrigan explains, quote, For television viewers at home and around the world, the air campaign seemed precise, effortless, and almost risk-free. It looked like a high-tech romp carried out by mysterious stealth fighters and Tomahawk cruise missiles. Viewers saw grainy, black-and-white footage of laser-guided smart bombs plunging through doors or down air ducts, and they assumed that a new video game style of warfare had arrived. End quote. Most reporters knew better, of course, the quote, cheerfully antiseptic depictions of what was happening in Kuwait and Iraq were a misrepresentation at best, and a lie at worst. As one reporter grumbled, quote, They fed us a steady diet of press conferences in which they decided what the news would be. And if somehow, after all that, we managed to report on something they didn't like, they would censor it out. It amounted to recruiting the press into the military. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Schwarzkopf's briefings were also amplified by the slick graphics and breathless coverage of a new rising American media giant, the Cable News Network. This is CNN. These days, CNN is a wobbly shadow of its former self, but back in the 1990s? Back in the 90s, CNN was more than news. It was a global obsession. Founded in 1980, the Atlanta-based network ushered in a new paradigm of television journalism. As the world's first 24-hour news network, CNN was able to cover the biggest stories of the day as they happened, minute by minute. And it quickly became the gold standard for the latest breaking news, available in 95 countries and watched by almost every world leader who mattered. From Margaret Thatcher to Fidel Castro, George H.W. Bush and Saddam Hussein had very little in common, but they both watched CNN. As one journalist observed, quote, CNN has changed news. Before CNN, events were reported in two cycles, from morning and evening newspapers and newscasts. Now news knows no cycle. When a plane has crashed or shots are fired in a school, we expect to see it immediately on all news channels. We don't depend on the big three broadcast networks. And the turning point came shortly after CNN's 10th birthday, when Bernard Shaw, Peter Arnett, and John Holloman provided play-by-play -play of the 1991 Gulf War from a Baghdad hotel. The Gulf War proved how CNN had changed the world. U.S. military leaders chose their words carefully during televised press briefings, knowing that Saddam Hussein was watching CNN too. End quote. And so, when the Gulf War began, millions of thumbs clicked millions of remote controls across the country, and they all clicked straight to CNN. And what they saw was a very different kind of war. This was not an ugly, bloody, muddy fiasco like Vietnam. This was a war of precision. Perfection, even where laser-guided missiles and smart bombs hit the right target at the right time, every time. Where the good guys always won, and only bad guys died. As one writer put it, quote, Only flawless missions displaying dead-on accuracy were released, with audio recordings of cursing, hyperventilating pilots primly excised. This was a war stripped of its passions, said the writer Jean Baudrillard. Its phantasms, its finery, its veils, its violence, its images, war stripped bare by its technicians even, and then reclothed by them with all the artifices of electronics, as though with a second skin. In other words, what Americans saw at home was a fake war. A clean, digitized, guilt-free video game war. As historian Rick Atkinson put it, quote, The technology also distorted, even perverted, the American concept of combat 
which quickly came to be seen as surgical, simple, and bloodless. War was none of these things, and never would be. And this bizarre disconnect between the ugly reality of war and the chest-thumping jingoism blaring into American homes was perhaps best exemplified by a brand new product that began popping up in stores around the country starting in early February. Desert Storm Trading Cards Baseball card companies like Topps and ProSet began manufacturing their own collections of trading cards inspired by the crisis in the Persian Gulf. Priced at just 75 cents a pack, the cards featured public figures like Storm and Norman, Saddam Hussein, Dick Cheney, and Colin Powell. Military hardware was also represented. Apache helicopters, Scud missiles, and F-117 Nighthawks were traded and swapped in lunchrooms across the country like Pokemon cards. They're the most popular cards I've sold in a long time, said one card shop owner. You collect Desert Storm trading cards? Fuck yeah. Those things are collector's items, man. You have any idea how much those things are going to be worth one day? Really? Hell yeah. That's just like an investment. I have lots of little investments all over the place. One day I'm going to sell all of them just so I can live off of it. So, like, how much is this one worth? Which? Night vision goggles. I don't know, mint? Uh, two, maybe three. Dollars? Yeah. It's too early, you don't sell them yet. Don't you know anything about investing? I'm gonna live off that shit. If you have a complete set, it's worth, like, thousands. So do you have the complete set? Almost. The uh, corners are bent on my friendly fire and someone stole my wolf blitzer. It all helped contribute to a relentless oorah media atmosphere that seemed to defang or even obscure the truth about what was actually happening on the ground. One news graphic director at NBC couldn't help but dislike the way that CNN and his own network characterized the conflict. Quote, It was a little too top-gunny. I was concerned about my children and the way it made war look fun. In the city of Baghdad, however, the air war looked very, very different. We have no argument with the people of Iraq. Indeed, for the innocents caught in this conflict, I pray for their safety. It's February 13th. 1991. We're in the city of Baghdad, or to be more precise, what is left of the city of Baghdad. Four weeks earlier, on the first night of the war, hundreds of American bombers had dropped a deluge of high explosives onto the city. And then they came back the next night, and the night after that, and the night after that. For residents of the capital, one month of war had effectively turned the clock back 200 years. The bombing campaign, Rick Atkinson writes, had, quote, reduced the Iraqi capital to 19th century privation. The city lacked running water, telephone service, garbage collection, and electricity. Without power, Baghdad's two sewer treatment plants no longer functioned, and millions of gallons of raw waste poured into the Tigris. Day after day, Iraqi civilians woke up to screams and stench and new fires to put out. The steady destruction of the capital's most prominent landmarks was evident to everyone, Atkinson continues. Every morning, the city skyline was altered, reduced. 
Many Baghdad residents, like the writer Nuha al-Radi, couldn't understand why this was happening to them. Quote, The one thing that no one bet on was that Baghdad was going to be bombed and hit like this. They were supposed to be freeing Kuwait. Maybe they need a map. If Nuha had been able to walk up to Norman Schwarzkopf and his lieutenants and ask them point-blank why their home was being so relentlessly attacked, she would have received a clear and clinical answer. As historian Bernard Trainer put it, quote, The strikes in and around Baghdad were an effort to both shut down the Iraqi command structure and to create the conditions for Saddam Hussein's overthrow by destroying the levies of power and stripping away the security forces that the Iraqi leader depended on for his own survival. End quote. One Air Force commander put it a bit more simply, quote, That's the head. That's the brain. That's where the missions and orders come from. President Bush had plainly told the cameras that the U.S. had no argument with the Iraqi people, and General Schwarzkopf himself resented any intimation that the misery being inflicted on Baghdad was in any way intentional, saying, quote, We are not, 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 not deliberately targeting civilian casualties, and we never will. We are a moral and ethical people. End quote. Well, it sure didn't feel that way in Baghdad. As Nuha already wrote in her journal at the time, quote, Depression has hit me with the realization that the whole world hates us and is really glad to ruin us. It's not a comforting thought. It is an unfair world. Other countries do wrong. Look at what Russia did in Afghanistan or Turkey's invasion of Cyprus or Israel taking over Palestine and Lebanon. Nobody bombed them senseless the way we are being bombarded now. They were not even punished. Iraq has had many high and low peaks in its long history. We have certainly become notorious. This will be neither the first nor the last time. Too much history, as a friend of mine always says. At least Baghdad is now on the map. I will no longer have to explain where I come from. 27,000 air raids on us so far. Is the world mad? Do they not realize what they are doing? I think Bush is a criminal. This country is totally ruined. Who gives the Americans the license to bomb at will? I could understand Kuwait doing this to us, but not the whole world. Why do they hate us so much? End quote. And as the bombs continued to fall, life got progressively worse in Baghdad. Municipal water processing plants, pumping stations, and even reservoirs have been bombed, wrote former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark. Electric generators have been destroyed. Refineries and oil and gasoline factories and filling stations have been attacked. Telephone exchange buildings, TV and radio stations, and some radio relay stations and towers. Many highways, roads, bridges, bus stations, schools, mosques, and churches. Cultural sites and hospitals have been damaged. We are raining death and destruction with our technology on the life of Iraq. End quote. In Baghdad hospitals, Rick Atkinson writes, quote, Physicians boiled dressings from one patient to use on another. When generators failed, surgeons operated by lantern, candle, and flashlight. Cases of sepsis, dysentery, hepatitis, and other diseases soared. When morgues overflowed, health workers reportedly buried the dead in hospital gardens. End quote. For all the talk of surgical strikes and bloodless precision, the explosives being dropped on Baghdad were often wildly inaccurate. The smart bombs and laser-guided missiles that news anchors gushed over only accounted for about 7% of the bombs being dropped, and they only hit their targets about 60% of the time. 
The rest of the bombs, the vast majority, were the same good old-fashioned explosives that American B-52s had dropped on the jungles of Vietnam, and those only hit their targets about 25% of the time. As one historian put it, quote, precision bombing became a comical oxymoron. The smart bombs may have been great for public relations, but if the average American taxpayer knew just how much they cost and how rarely they hit their mark, they might have felt a little bit differently. Even Colin Powell couldn't hide his skepticism about the much-typed but only 50% accurate Tomahawk cruise missiles. Quote, Jesus, every time you pull the trigger, it's another $2 million. Needless to say, it all took a heavy toll on Baghdad residents, both physically and psychologically. Even the local animal life was not immune to the effects of the air war. The birds have taken the worst beating of all, Nuha already wrote. They have sensitive souls which cannot take all this hideous noise and vibration, and all the caged lovebirds have died from the shock of the blasts, while birds in the wild fly upside down and do crazy somersaults. Hundreds, if not thousands, have died in the orchard, and lonely survivors fly about in a distracted fashion. Sanitation and hygiene didn't fare much better in the siege conditions. My hands and nails are disgusting, wrote Nuha al-Radi. Everyone has a sooty face. No one bothers to look in the mirror anymore. As the weeks passed and the bombing campaign dragged on and on, international observers started to raise concerns. This was becoming excessive, they said. Overkill. As one Russian visitor to the city explained, quote, How much more blood do they want? I don't know if there's anything in Baghdad left to bomb. They have cut out the liver and the kidneys, gouged out the eyes, and pierced the eardrums of Baghdad, once a healthy, flourishing being. By mid-February, even the brass back in Washington were beginning to express a discomfort with the ceaseless destruction of a major population center. At best, this was a case of diminishing returns. Colin Powell, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, started to worry that all they were doing was, quote, making the rubble bounce. But for the most part, the Bush administration held firm. The Iraqi army was still dug into Kuwait. Saddam Hussein was still alive and in power. And until one of those things changed, bombs would continue to rain on Baghdad. As President Bush put it, quote, There's another way for the bloodshed to stop, and that is for the Iraqi military and the Iraqi people to take matters into their own hands, to force Saddam, the dictator, to step aside. End quote. An Air Force commander named David Deptula echoed the point, quote, Hey, your lights will come back on as soon as you get rid of Saddam. But for the average Iraqi citizen, that was a bit like asking them to land on the moon. As one civilian commented, quote, We all hate Saddam. We always thought that he was a bad man. But this war is worse than Saddam. Why has it gone on so long? The truth was, Schwarzkopf and Cheney and Powell and Bush had little reason to change course until their military objectives had been achieved. 85% of Americans polled said that they fully approved of George H.W. Bush's decision to attack Iraq. It was one of the highest approval ratings any American president had enjoyed since Pearl Harbor. But then, on February 13th, something happened in Baghdad. A terrible mistake that changed everything. Just after midnight, a pair of American F-117 Nighthawks took off from a base in Saudi Arabia, bound for Baghdad. Their target was a military bunker in the heart of the city, a, quote, command and control center filled with some of the most important leaders in the Iraqi security service. The CIA had identified the bunker as a target earlier that month, when satellite images revealed that the building's roof had been painted in camouflage, 
and there were large numbers of military vehicles parked outside. On February 10th, the bunker was designated a priority target, and 48 hours later, American stealth bombers were closing in fast. But if the satellites had been able to look just a little closer, they would have noticed a small sign outside the building. A sign that read, in clear, bold letters, Public Shelter No. 25. This was not a military bunker. It was a civilian refuge, packed with hundreds of women and children just looking for somewhere safe to spend the night. Earlier that evening, the kids had enjoyed sandwiches and cuddled up to watch a few grainy VCR movies on a flickering TV. Bruce Lee and Clint Eastwood were some of their favorite American movie stars. And then, after the movies were over, they went to bed, blissfully unaware of the two stealth bombers closing in on their location. At about 4.30 a.m., the Nighthawks arrived. A 2,000-pound laser-guided bomb plummeted through the air and punched a hole in the reinforced concrete. Moments later, another bomb fell, burrowing down into the interior and detonating in the belly of the shelter. The lucky ones died instantly, wrote Rick Atkinson. Screams ripped through the darkness, muffled by tons of shattered concrete and the roaring inferno that enveloped the shelter's upper floor. Sheets of fire melted triple-decker bunk beds, light fixtures, and eyeballs. One survivor, Omar Adnan, a 17-year-old whose parents and three younger sisters perished, later described the conflagration. Quote, I was sleeping, and suddenly I felt heat, and the blanket was burning. Moments later, I felt like I was suffocating. I turned to cry and touched my mother, who was next to me, but grabbed nothing but a piece of flesh. As rescue workers poured into the ruins to look for survivors, they found that the residual heat from the blast literally melted their plastic gloves. And inside the shelter, they found the monstrous results of the type of warfare that CNN and Schwarzkopf like to depict as clean, precise, and sanitary. According to Atkinson, quote, Bodies lay in grotesque piles, fused together by the heat. Limbs and torsos were strewn across the floor. Eighteen inches of water flooded one corridor, the surface covered with a skim of melted human tallow. End quote. As news spread across the city, the sickening reality of what had happened began to sink in. As Nuha already wrote in her journal, quote, They hit a shelter, the one in Amaria. They thought it was going to be full of party bigwigs, but instead, it turned out to be full of women and children. Only some of the men survived who had remained to guard their houses. An utter horror. We don't even know the worst of it yet. The Americans insist that the women and children were put there on purpose? I ask you, is that logical? Casualty figures are always tough to pin down, and the sources vary, but it's generally believed that about 400 people were killed in the shelter attack. Possibly more. Back at Desert Storm HQ in Riyadh, the mistake was clear, irrefutable, and deeply demoralizing. As one commander commented, quote, Boy, did we fuck up. And the political fallout in the corridors of power was swift and severe. Up to that point, the military had been given a very long leash to prosecute the air war. And from now on, Washington would pick the urban targets. And downtown Baghdad was essentially off-limits. Publicly, however, the Bush administration continued to insist that the bunker-slash-shelter had been a legitimate military target. Whatever the case, the American public didn't seem all that bothered by the loss of life. In one ABC poll, 8 out of 10 Americans said that they blamed the Iraqi government for the tragedy. Nevertheless, planners in the Pentagon did not want to create the conditions for a repeat performance. As Colin Powell remembered, quote, 
After something like this, we did not need another situation where large numbers of civilians were getting killed. I mean, we were a month into the war, and our concentration was shifting to the battlefield. In other words, the air campaign had run its course. It was time for the ground war to begin. On February 23rd, President George H.W. Bush informed the American public that the war in the Persian Gulf was about to enter a new stage. After six weeks of airstrikes and cruise missiles and cluster bombs, the ballistic equivalent of multiple Hiroshima's, Saddam Hussein had still not withdrawn his army from Kuwait. I have therefore directed General Norman Schwarzkopf, in conjunction with coalition forces, to use all forces available, including ground forces, to eject the Iraqi army from Kuwait. In Saudi Arabia, American infantry grunts like Anthony Swafford got the word. After scraping by on three hours of sleep and living in fear of scuds dropping from the sky, they were going in. They were actually going to fight. For some soldiers, it was a relief. Anything was better than sitting around lifting dumbbells in the desert. But for others, the news of the impending ground assault felt like a stone in their gut. Thousands of soldiers scribbled final letters home, writes Rick Atkinson, groping for words to convey the fearful exhilaration that seizes an army on the eve of battle. Many settled for, I'm scared, and I love you. In a letter to his girlfriend Maria, a Lieutenant Alex Vernon of the 24th Mechanized Infantry Division poured his fears onto the page. Quote, I cannot handle this. I am not cut out for it. All I want to do is cry. Nothing makes sense. I think I wrote earlier that knowing the plan set me somewhat at ease because I knew something. Well, I was wrong. Others, like Anthony Swafford, experienced a certain degree of bitterness and a disdain for the high-minded ideals that had brought them to die so far from home. Just a little warning, this is graphic. Quote, I don't care about a new world order. I don't care about human rights violations in Kuwait City, Amnesty International, my ass. Rape them all, kill them all, sell their oil, pillage their gold, sell their children into prostitution. I don't care about the flag and God and country and core. I don't give a fuck about oil and revenue and million barrels per day and U.S. jobs. I have a job. I'll walk the rest of my life. I'm a grunt. I'm supposed to walk and love it. I'm 20 years old and I was dumb enough to sign a contract. And here I sit. Miserable, oh misery, oh stinking hell of all miseries. Here I sit in the hairy armpit, swinging in the ball sack, slopping through the straddle trench of the world. And I can hear the bombs already. I can hear their bombs. And I am afraid. End quote. Fears of chemical weapons also preyed on the American infantrymen. Visions of nerve agents and noxious fumes and soldiers clawing out their own throats. Saddam hadn't let one off the chain yet, but now that he was backed into a corner, everybody assumed he'd get desperate and do something stupid. As Swafford continued, quote, In my dark fantasies, the chemicals are gassy and green or yellow and floating around the warhead. The warhead on its way to me, my personal warhead, whistling its way to the earth into my little hole. I think about all quiet on the Western Front. I, I can't remember if chemicals were used in the book or the movie, but I know that during the early years of the Great War, nerve gas killed tens of thousands. And I don't want to die in that old, terrible way. End quote. But in spite of all the natural jitters that plagued the American troops on the eve of the ground war, Schwarzkopf and his lieutenants were extremely confident. As one commander boasted to the Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney, quote, 
I'm not worried about a thing. The force is fully modernized, the logistics are in place, the planning has been done. Thousands of hours of planning. The troop spirit is tremendous. And in my judgment, we're going to take the Iraqis apart in 10 days to two weeks. End quote. The Saudis, meanwhile, were delighted at the gung-ho attitude of their protectors. With any luck, the Iraqis would be kicked out of the Gulf in a matter of weeks, and everything could go right back to normal. As one Saudi citizen commented, quote, The American soldiers are a new kind of foreign worker here. We have Pakistanis driving taxis, and now we have Americans defending us. And so, all across the deserts of Saudi Arabia, the coalition ground forces coiled into a great mailed fist, a billion-dollar battering ram of tanks and artillery and infantry that was going to put Saddam's army out of its misery. Brown streams of dust boiled from beneath each tank and truck, writes Rick Atkinson. Hundreds of tanks and trucks, then thousands, then tens of thousands. Wave followed wave in an inexorable flood of steel, roiling the desert calm with the shrill creak of armored tracks and the whir of turrets, swinging towards imaginary targets as crews raised their tubes and fixed their sights and in their mind's eye killed and killed again. Jesus, said one soldier. It's like being in the middle of the Spanish Armada. At about 4 o'clock in the morning, on February 24, 1991, the coalition ground forces crossed the Saudi border into Iraq and Kuwait. And as the tanks pushed deeper and deeper into the Iraqi lines, they saw what six weeks of airstrikes had done to the fourth largest army in the world. The dreaded fortifications, the miles of barbed wire and trenches and oil pits, had all been scattered like driftwood. The desert looked like a giant rake had gone over it, wrote one historian. There was bomb debris everywhere. Nothing was a straight line. American soldiers soon encountered wave after wave of Iraqi troops. But to their surprise, most of those troops had their hands up. Saddam's army was surrendering in droves. Before the war, one U.S. military handbook had described the Iraqi military as, quote, one of the best equipped and most combat experienced in the world distinguished by its flexibility, unity of command, and high level of mobility, end quote. Conventional wisdom said that this army, according to the always colorful Anthony Swafford, was, quote, full of elite fighters who had learned how to throw grenades when I was barely off the tit. Well, that was not what this was. This was a rabble, a broken, hollow force. The coalition's air force had done its job very well indeed. In the six weeks preceding the ground offensive, the Iraqi army had essentially been bombed into submission. The Gulf War, said the French writer Jean Baudrillard, was won in advance. In the wide-open Arabian desert, there was simply nowhere to hide. The terrain, writes Atkinson, magnified both the effects of air supremacy and the Americans' technological advantages. In Iraq, the army had found their perfect killing field. Iraqi soldiers peered up into the blue, hoping and praying for air support, but it never came. The Iraqi Air Force, wanting to save their hardware and fight another day, had ironically fled into the open arms of their old enemy, Iran. American pilots joked, writes Atkinson, that Iraqi planes now wore bumper stickers that warned, if you can read this, you're on your way to Iran. As a result, American planes owned the skies over Kuwait and Iraq, and Saddam's army was never, ever safe. During the day, they were strafed and bombed and butchered. At night, American planes using infrared systems were able to locate Iraqi tanks in the pitch black and pick them off like carnival targets. As one captured Iraqi general remembered, quote, In the Iran-Iraq war, my tank was my friend because I could sleep my soldiers in it and keep them safe from Iranian artillery. 
In this war, my tank was my enemy. End quote. In General Schwarzkopf's command bunker in Riyadh, the dwindling strength of the Iraqi army was represented by a series of colored flags on a huge paper map. According to Atkinson, quote, Each Iraqi division in Kuwait and southeastern Iraq was represented with a small paper sticker. A green sticker marked a division judged to be 75% to 100% combat effective, with most of its equipment unscathed and the unit's fighting capacity largely intact. A yellow sticker represented a division of 50 to 75% effective, and a red sticker meant that the division was less than 50% intact and no longer considered a serious threat. Slowly and inexorably, the map became a vivid mosaic, as green began to give way to yellow, and yellow to a bright and bloody red. End quote. As Colin Powell had put it, quote, Over a period of time, they'll shrivel like a grape when the vine's been cut. And so by the time the coalition's ground forces moved in, most soldiers in the Iraqi army had been reduced to starving vagrants with rusty guns. They had had enough, and they did not want to die for Saddam way out here in the desert. As Karsh and Rautzi describe, quote, Within less than 48 hours of fighting, the backbone of the Iraqi army had been broken. The apparently formidable line of defense in Kuwait, the so-called Saddam Line, collapsed as Allied forces pushed through the Iraqi lines and stormed into Kuwait. Iraqi troops were surrendering en masse. By the end of the first day of fighting, some 14,000 prisoners of war had been taken. And by the end of the second day, this number had exceeded 20,000 and was growing by the hour. End quote. On one occasion, a group of Marines was making their way through a Kuwaiti irrigation field, and one of the Americans accidentally discharged his weapon. At the sound of the gunshot, a group of terrified Iraqi soldiers jumped out of their hiding spot in a nearby thicket and put their hands up. None of our fears materialized, remembered one Marine commander. They were never that good. We made them into something they weren't. And it was not long, wrote one historian, before the jokes circulated. Jokes like, for sale, Iraqi rifles, only dropped once. Or, a modification work order was directed for all Iraqi tanks. Backup lights were installed. Or, did you hear about the new store chain in Iraq? Target. It quickly became apparent that the morale of the fourth largest army in the world was not just low, it was subterranean. One captured Iraqi general blamed Saddam himself, saying, quote, I remember Saddam saying that Americans would not be able to stand the loss of even a hundred soldiers and that Iraqis would be prepared to lose thousands. Well, our soldiers heard this too, and it had a very bad effect because they knew that he was talking about them. One American soldier marveled at the sorry state of the Iraqi equipment, the rusty weapons and magazines jammed with sand. Quote, These bastards would have gotten about two magazines off before their weapons failed. Jesus, this wasn't an army. It was a pack of assholes with rifles. But not all the Iraqi soldiers were surrendering or demoralized or inept. Many were hardened, extremely capable, and willing to die for their country. And they expected the same of their fellow soldiers. As American infantrymen began to process the thousands upon thousands of prisoners, they noticed that some were limping. Apparently, some of the Iraqi officers had been cutting the Achilles tendons of their troops to keep them from running away and forcing them to fight. But those true believers died quickly. The coalition forces made short work of any resistance. As Anthony Swafford remembered, quote, Over the radio, we hear of an occasional Iraqi tank squad making the poor decision to fight rather than surrender. Some of the tank battles last less than five minutes, as long as it takes the Marine gunner to sight, aim, and send that hell downrange. 
One coalition soldier said that killing Iraqis in Kuwait was so easy that it was like slaughtering, quote, tethered goats. I have never seen such destruction, wrote Anthony Swafford. The scene is too real not to be real. Every 50 to 100 feet, a burned-out and bombed-out enemy vehicle lies disabled on the unimproved surface road. Bodies dead in the vehicles or blown from them. Dozens, hundreds of vehicles with bodies inside or out. End quote. But the most surreal sight in Kuwait came into view as the coalition moved deeper into the country. The horizon itself was on fire. The sky was black, even in the middle of the day. According to one historian, quote, Gripped by anger and despair and determined to preserve the appearance of doing something, Saddam set the Kuwaiti oil fields on fire. Iraqi engineers had rigged the hundreds of oil wells in Kuwait with C-4 explosives, and with the ground defensive looming, they had blown the charges. And the resulting landscape was ripped from the pages of Tolkien. Mordor come to life. Saddam, wrote one historian, began torching Kuwaiti oil wells, oil lakes, and fire trenches, ultimately destroying upwards of 800 installations. The motivation behind this has never really been established, but in all likelihood it was a scorched-earth policy. In addition to being a means of punishing the ruling Asabah family of Kuwait, it would create a massive smokescreen to inhibit coalition airstrikes, compromise precision-guided weapons and overhead satellite surveillance, and at least partially screen Iraqi military movement. At the same time, Iraqi engineers opened the taps on oil pipelines into the Gulf, creating the largest oil spill in history. Up to 336 million gallons of oil was dumped into the Persian Gulf, ostensibly to prevent not only a suspected U.S. Marine amphibious landing, but also simply as an act of ecological terrorism. Flying over the oil wells, one pilot wrote, it was like something out of Dante's Inferno, with thick, black, oil-field smoke, a littered battlefield, burning tanks, aircraft flying around, very surrealistic. You almost had to slap yourself into reality to go out there and do your job. I still have trouble coming up with adequate words to describe the oil wells, wrote Buck Wyndham. Imagine the prototypical image of hell, the one you pictured as a kid, with bubbling cauldrons of flame and smoke. Now make those fires into raging towers of jet-propelled flame shooting skyward. But forget about the sky or any sense of open space. Blot out the sky and sun completely. Surround yourself with acrid black blankets of choking smoke. Weave in a barren, sandy landscape stretching to infinity, full of fires, smoke, and power lines. And now you've got some idea of what the place was like. End quote. Before long, the air was so thick with oil that it fell like rain on the advancing Americans. Anthony Swafford recalled the almost hallucinatory experience. Quote, the sky blackens like midnight, even though it's only 1700 the flames shoot a hundred feet into the air, fiery arms groping after a disinterested god. We can also hear the fires, and they sound like the echoes from extinct beasts bellowing to re-enter the living world. I look at the sky and the petrol rain falling on my uniform. I want the oil in and on me. I open my mouth. I want to taste it. I want to understand this viscous liquid. What does it mean? Kuhn, a fellow soldier, says, Swaff, you better close your mouth. That shit's poison. And I keep my mouth open, and drops of oil hit my tongue like a light rain. The crude tastes like the earth, like foul dirt, the dense core of something I'll never understand. I don't swallow the oil, it just sits on my tongue. 
and when I can no longer stand the taste, I wipe my tongue on my sleeve. End quote. Far away in Baghdad, even Iraqi civilians like Nuha al-Radi eventually felt the impact of the oil fires. Quote, We had the black clouds with us again today, and it rained. What are we breathing? All of our houses are streaked with huge black drips, dripping from the parapets of the roofs. It's the new look. We might start a fashionable trend in external house patterning. End quote. And so, as the hours passed, the oil burned, and the POWs multiplied, the coalition pushed deeper and deeper into what the Marines began to call the Land of Darkness. It's February 24th, 1991. We're in Washington, D.C., at the St. John's Episcopal Church, one block from the White House. It's just after 7 o'clock in the morning, and the church is filled with Sunday worshipers. The stained glass is gleaming in the sunlight, the organ is droning a faithful melody, and George H.W. Bush is sitting in pew number 54, clutching a prayer book. Every American president since James Madison had prayed in this exact same spot. And this creaky, uncomfortable little bench had been an oasis of calm for many wartime presidents. Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, Woodrow Wilson during World War I, and Lyndon B. Johnson during Vietnam. And now, it was Bush's turn. Over the course of his life, Bush had spent a lot of time in pews like these. He had closed his eyes, clasped his hands together, and prayed. And like most religious men of his generation, he had sent countless requests up into the cosmos asking for health, wealth, and, more recently, decent poll numbers. The results, of course, were mixed. Sometimes his prayers were answered, other times they were not. Many years earlier, in 1953, Bush had whispered many prayers for his three-year-old daughter, Robin. Earlier that spring, the little girl had been diagnosed with an aggressive form of leukemia. Bush and his wife Barbara threw everything they had at the disease, all their resources, their time, their energy, but in the end... It wasn't enough. The disease worked fast, and by the fall of that year, all that was left of Robin was an empty hospital bed and a little gravestone in a Texas cemetery. It had been almost 40 years since Robin died, and now, in February of 1991, Bush was praying for a very different sort of deliverance. 6,000 miles away from St. John's Episcopal Church, a war was raging. Other people's children were dying, and as commander-in-chief, he had sent them there. But at one point during the Sunday service, Bush's concentration was broken by something being pushed into his hands. It was a small handwritten note passed forward from the Secretary of Defense, Dick Cheney, who was seated in the pew behind the president. Bush unfolded the note and silently read the words. It said, quote, Mr. President, things are going very well. It was just one sentence, but it spoke volumes. And in that moment, those 33 letters gave Bush more comfort than the thickest prayer book ever could. The ground war was not going to be the bloodbath that everybody had feared. This was not going to be Vietnam all over again. As Dick Cheney remembered, quote, We had assumed that the toughest part of the ground war, in terms of casualties, would have been the early hours of that conflict. And in fact, what we were finding was that the air war had been enormously effective and decimated the Iraqi forces and that they, in fact, were collapsing in front of us. End quote. 
Bush was so relieved that he was moved to literal tears. I felt myself choking up, he reflected later that day. It's going to be quicker than anyone ever thought. All the talking heads, all the worst case, and all the Congress and their pusillanimous views look now to be wrong. God, I hope so. Because it means American life. It was true, things were going much better than expected. But despite the president's sense of relief, American life was still ebbing away in the Gulf. And to everyone's surprise, the largest and most dramatic loss of life didn't happen on the battlefield at all. It happened 250 miles away from the front, in a small town in Saudi Arabia called Dauran. For almost two months now, American soldiers had been living in fear of SCUDs, the famously erratic long-range missiles that Saddam Hussein had been lobbing into Israel since the war began. General Schwarzkopf had dismissed them as, quote, pissant weapons that were less dangerous than a Georgia lightning storm. Well, on February 25th, 1991, the second day of the ground war, one lucky scud finally found its mark. At 8.20 p.m., U.S. Army soldiers in Dauran were having dinner in a makeshift barracks building. Some of them were playing poker or trivial pursuit or writing letters home. A few seconds later, a scud came down through the roof. As one historian wrote, quote, The Scud, possibly the only Iraqi missile that failed to break apart in flight, smashed through the center of the metal roof. For an instant, the force of the penetration caused sheet metal and I-beams to buckle inward, folding over the soldiers like closing petals on a tulip. A shockwave, writes Jim Corrigan, flung twisted metal, flaming cots, and torn bodies more than 100 feet in every direction. 28 U.S. soldiers died, and more than 100 were wounded. For the United States, it was the deadliest day of the entire war. It was a horrific event to be sure, but it paled in comparison to what had been happening in Baghdad. In the capital, falling bombs were nothing new. This war is unbearable, one citizen told a foreign reporter. Baghdad is no longer a city, it has become a desert. It is high time that we withdraw from Kuwait. And as the news of their army's complete collapse filtered back to the capital, Iraqi civilians began to wonder aloud when this would all be over. As Nuha al-Radi wrote, quote, Nights and days full of noise. No sleep possible. What will happen to all of us now? For forty-odd days and nights, a biblical figure, we have just been standing around with our mouths open, swallowing bombs. Figuratively speaking, that is. We didn't have anything to do with the Kuwait takeover and yet we have been paying the price for it. Meanwhile, our leader is alive and well, or not so well. We do not know. End quote. Saddam Hussein was most certainly alive, but he definitely was not well. Somewhere in Baghdad, deep in a reinforced bunker, the president of Iraq was shaking with rage. Six months ago, he'd been in possession of the fourth largest army in the world. And now, he'd be lucky if he could salvage enough men to ward off the inevitable revolution that was sure to come in the wake of this disaster. In the gloom of his bunker, Saddam did not look like the same confident autocrat that had spit in the eye of the world's last superpower, or promised victory in the, quote, mother of all battles. Weeks of hiding underground and moving from safe house to safe house had taken its toll. He was 30 pounds thinner. He looked tired, haggard, and exhausted. But he still had enough energy to be very, very angry. As an Iraqi general named Wafik al-Samari recalled, quote, Saddam was very upset. He was deeply depressed, and for reasons known only to himself, he accused five top-ranking officers of betrayal and then ordered their execution. The sentence was carried out immediately by his personal guards, end quote. 
All his life, he'd been surrounded by traitors and cowards and idiots, people who did not have the stomach for power. Weak men who, when confronted with ruin, let themselves be swallowed up by pride and swept away by circumstance, drowned in the undertow of history. Well, Saddam decided he was not going to be that person. Somehow, some way, he was going to navigate this catastrophe. One way or another, he was going to survive. That day, the 25th of February, a message went out on Iraqi state radio. Quote, Orders have been issued to our armed forces to withdraw in an organized manner to positions they held prior to August 1st, 1990. This is regarded as practical compliance with UN Resolution 660. Our army, which has proven its ability to fight and stand fast, will confront any attempt to harm it while it is carrying out this order. End quote. Saddam's order, wrote one historian, granted permission to his troops to run for their lives. In Kuwait City, the occupying Iraqi soldiers realized that they had three choices. One, fight the Americans and die. Two, surrender to the Americans and face the consequences. Or three, get the hell out of Dodge and run back to Iraq. Most of them chose door number three. What began as an evacuation, writes Saeed K. Aburish, turned into an unorganized stampede. It was an evacuation, it was a retreat, but it was most definitely not a surrender. By refusing to officially acknowledge defeat, Saddam Hussein was trying to salvage his army and his public image at the same time. As he said later in a speech to the Iraqi people, quote, Applaud your victories, my dear citizens. You have faced 30 countries and the evil they have brought here. You have faced the whole world, great Iraqis, and you have won. You are victorious. How sweet victory is. Many Iraqis, of course, saw right through the delusional facade. As Nuha al-Radi bitterly reflected, quote, Our national radio continues to broadcast our victorious state. It is utterly disgusting. Their line is that we fought against 30 nations and are still here, which is true until one looks at the condition that we're in. Back in Washington, George H.W. Bush was seething. Saddam had lost, and now he was trying to skirt the consequences to have his cake and eat it too, to cheat the hangman. Nobody wants to use the word surrender, Bush wrote in his diary. That doesn't go over well out there, but I've never heard of a war where there's not a winner or a loser. He is not withdrawing, Bush told reporters. His defeated forces are retreating. He is trying to claim victory in the midst of a rout. The coalition, Bush affirmed, would, quote, continue to prosecute the war with undiminished intensity undiminished intensity. Now that was music to the ears of Storman Norman Schwarzkopf and his lieutenants in Riyadh. So far, the ground war was going very, very well, but Schwarzkopf was starting to get nervous that the coalition would become a victim of its own success. The Iraqi army was retreating faster than U.S. forces could kill or capture them. The Iraqi forces, Dick Cheney gloated, are conducting the mother of all retreats. But every moment that the defeated Iraqi army got closer to home, the window of opportunity was closing. The UN resolutions had expressly not given them a mandate to pursue Saddam's army all the way back to Baghdad. The mission was to kick them out of Kuwait. End of story. And Schwarzkopf began to worry that a large portion of the Iraqi army would escape back to Baghdad and live to fight another day. As he remembered, quote, I was repeatedly calling up my subordinate commander and telling him, we must attack. We must attack. We must make contact with the enemy. They are running away on us, and we must gain 
and maintain contact to keep them from running away. End quote. Colin Powell, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, had once expressed the coalition's war aims a bit more viscerally, quote, I don't want Saddam Hussein to walk away with his army intact. I want to leave their tanks as smoking kilometer fence posts all the way back to Baghdad, end quote. Well, on February 26th, the coalition identified its golden opportunity. That day, CENTCOM received intelligence from the Saudis that a huge convoy of Iraqi forces from Kuwait City were fleeing back home along a six-lane highway called Highway 80. As Jim Corrigan writes, quote, Iraqi tanks and armored personnel carriers were heading north towards Basra, part of an enormous convoy that included commandeered luxury cars and public buses. The invaders were leaving and taking as much of Kuwait as they could drive or carry. Stolen vehicles brimmed with electronics, jewelry, artwork, and household furnishings. Six months earlier, Iraq's army had rolled triumphantly down Highway 80, and now they fled via the same route. End quote. American radar aircraft quickly corroborated the intel from the Saudis, and shortly after, coalition pilots were ordered to intercept the convoy. To quote, stop it at all costs. The first American plane to make visual contact with the Iraqi convoy did so in the middle of a thunderstorm. As Corrigan writes, quote, Webbed lightning flashed continually, and heavy turbulence rattled the cockpit. Rain sheeted so thickly that the plane's targeting radar couldn't reach the ground. Yet through it all, they could see a shimmering river of headlights that stretched for miles across all six lanes. It looked like rush hour in a major American city. End quote. In a literal desert storm, the coalition had found their final killing ground. Swarms of American aircraft descended upon the Iraqi convoy. B-52s, Marine Harriers, F-15s, just about anything with wings and a bomb rack, wrote one historian. Out in the Gulf, on an American aircraft carrier called the USS Ranger, jets shrieked off the flight deck to the tune of the famous William Tell Overture. Composed by an Italian in the 1800s, it gained new life as the theme song for the popular American television series The Lone Ranger. Many of the commanders in Desert Storm had grown up with it, and to them it was a musical shorthand for heroism and justice. To them, it seemed an appropriate accompaniment as the Iraqi convoy blackened and twisted and melted into the asphalt of Highway 80. And that piece, if you're not familiar, sounds something like this. As the jets and bombers closed in on their prey, the pilots felt a kind of intoxication, a sense of righteous anger. One Air Force colonel said that he'd convinced the pilots to, quote, put hate in their heart and go out and stop the son-of-a-bitches from getting out of Kuwait. As we dove out of the clouds, one pilot remembered, the picture was absolutely astounding. There were thousands of headlights heading on every road that led north out of Kuwait City. Down on the ground, over the roar of diesel engines and grinding tank tracks, the fleeing Iraqis would have heard kind of a weird sound, an uncanny crackle in the air. As one U.S. airman explained, quote, Unlike the way they say in the movies, you know, the way you hear it in the movies, the bombs don't whistle in. They crackle because they're slowing down and crackling through the sound barrier. And after that initial crackle came a series of explosions that blew out eardrums and turned vehicles into molten metal. The front of the retreating Iraqi column was hit first, 
creating a choke point and causing a traffic jam that extended for miles. The Iraqis were trapped. Cluster bombs and missiles raked the convoy, fusing skin with seat leather, evaporating bone marrow, and melting sand into glass. Iraqi soldiers were cooked alive in their car seats, and those who ran into the open desert were dismembered by 30mm cannon fire. There were many wounded people on the road, one Iraqi soldier remembered, some without arms or legs. They were just stranded there, half dead, and when they saw our car, they started to crawl towards us. We didn't have space for them. With all the strength they could muster, they were throwing themselves at the side of the car, and the windows were smeared with blood, and we had no space. We had to drive on. End quote. The view would have looked much different from the air. As Buck Wyndham reflected on his own combat experience, quote, A mile or two up in the air, in the sunny, air-conditioned comfort of the cockpit, there is no sensation of real violence below. The explosion of an armored personnel carrier down in the desert is no more than a silent, brief flash of light, followed by a plume of black smoke. End quote. All that killing power unleashed by a simple squeeze of the trigger. In some ways, it was exhilarating, as one pilot remembered, quote, There's just nothing like it. It's the biggest 4th of July show you've ever seen. And to see those tanks just boom, more stuff just keeps spewing out of them, they just become white hot. It's wonderful. For two days and nights, wave after wave of American planes bombarded Highway 80. Every hunting cliche in the book was used by the pilots to describe the situation. Fish in a barrel, sitting ducks, turkey shoot. It's almost like hitting the jackpot, one F-15 weapons officer said. I mean, there are vehicles all over the place. It's a very lucrative target. And as the convoy of moving vehicles and living human beings slowly transformed into a procession of charred roadblocks, the shadow of doubt began to creep into the minds of some pilots. As one reflected, quote, One side of me says, that's right, it's like shooting ducks in a pond. Does that make me uncomfortable? Not necessarily. Except there is a side of me that says, what are they dying for? A madman's cause, and is that fair? Well, we're at war. It's the tragedy of war, but we do our jobs. For most of them, however, this was seen as justice, a cathartic coup de grace for an army that had brutalized a defenseless nation for six long months. As one Kuwaiti citizen named Kamal Awadi said, quote, These people who left Kuwait at the last moment were the security forces of Iraq, the people who really controlled the city. And they were the most brutal, most vicious people in Kuwait. We have no pity for them, because they had no pity on anybody. It was like a robbery, said one American staff sergeant. It was like we were the police force, and these guys got caught trying to burglarize a house. They made us come here and do it, another said. They should have listened to the president and left. General Schwarzkopf was also quick to defend what soldiers were starting to call the highway of doom, the highway to hell, or simply the highway of death. Quote, This was not a bunch of innocent people just trying to make their way back across the border to Iraq. This was a bunch of rapists, murders, and thugs who had raped and pillaged downtown Kuwait City, and now were trying to get out of the country before they were caught. End quote. The world's press, however, saw it differently. It was, quote, sickening, wrote one British journalist, to witness a retreating army being shot in the back. One retired U.S. admiral agreed, quote, they are routed, and the senseless killing of fleeing troops does not contribute in any way to the successful conclusion of this war. Even in Vietnam, one intelligence officer commented, I didn't see anything like this. Some British pilots outright refused to get in their planes and participate in the carnage. 
Back in Washington, some members of Bush's administration were beginning to worry that the slaughter of the retreating Iraqi army was bordering on excessive. And chief among them was Colin Powell. As one historian described the chairman's state of mind, quote, Legally, he knew, the Allies were on solid ground. The law of war permitted an attack on enemy combatants whether advancing, retreating, or standing still. The Geneva Convention of 1949 forbade the killing of an enemy clearly trying to surrender, a prohibition admirably observed during the Gulf War. Yet politically and morally, the chairman had qualms. This is over, Powell said. All we're doing is killing people. The Secretary of State, James Baker, agreed, quote, We have done the job. We can stop. We have achieved our aims. We have gotten them out of Kuwait. And so during the second day of the coalition's attack on the convoy, Wednesday afternoon, George H.W. Bush gathered his advisors in the Oval Office. And Colin Powell made his recommendation clear, quote, The Iraqi army is broken. If anything, they're just trying to get out. And I can report to you that they are well on their way to being out. In fact, we are crucifying large numbers of them. George Bush considered this, quote, Do you want another day? By tonight, Powell answered, there really won't be an enemy there. If you go another day, you're basically fighting stragglers. We don't want to be seen as piling on, added a member of Bush's national security team. Powell told the president that he believed that now was the time for the coalition to display, quote, chivalry in war. Continuing to massacre a defeated army was, quote, un-American. George Bush paused and nodded. It was time to end it. Shortly after, General Schwarzkopf received a call in Riyadh. Colin Powell informed the general, Rick Atkinson writes, that, quote, the shooting would stop at midnight Eastern Standard Time, precisely 100 hours after the ground war had begun. Bush and Cheney each took a turn on the phone to offer congratulations. Norm, the secretary said, you've done a hell of a job. Schwarzkopf hung up the phone and shared the news with the rest of the CENTCOM commanders. Some of them were not pleased at all. Saddam's army was beaten and broken, but it was still intact. Just a few more days and they'd be able to crush it completely. And the dictator would have no army left, which would ensure his downfall at home. You have got to be shitting me, one said. Why a ceasefire now? Schwarzkopf shrugged. 100 hours has a nice ring to it. That's bullshit, the man replied. Schwarzkopf turned away and said, quote, then you go argue with them. ABC News, World News Saturday. Here's Carol Simpson. Good evening. It was the biggest victory celebration the nation's capital has seen since World War II. The men and women of Operation Desert Storm paraded proudly through Washington today in a jubilant official welcome home. On the wide boulevards, just a few blocks from the White House, 8,000 Desert Storm troops were moving out. And once again, it was General Norman Schwarzkopf who set the cadence, leading the way as far as the presidential box where he spent the rest of the parade as cheerleader and spotter for a clearly delighted... It's June 8, 1991. 
three months after the end of the Gulf War. We're in Washington, D.C., and it feels like the summer of 1945 again. The air is thick with confetti and optimism. The skies are striped with white contrails from American jets, gleaming like brushstrokes against the blue. The streets are filled with neat rows of soldiers in desert fatigues, led by beaming commanders and showered with adoration from the crowd. For the hundreds of thousands of people attending the Gulf War Victory Parade, it is a perfect moment, on a perfect day, honoring a perfect victory. Even the weather is in lockstep with the troops on parade, clocking in at a temperate 78 degrees. And in the middle of it all, President George H.W. Bush is truly, deeply unsatisfied. As he waves to the crowd and shakes hands with a smiling General Schwarzkopf, Bush's mind is elsewhere. A president's brain, after all, is 20 pounds of problems in a three-pound bag, and on that perfect day, Bush's was no different. He was restless, he was distracted, but mostly, he was just tired. Right now, the American people loved him. They sang his praises and cheered his name. But in the world of domestic politics, approval ratings tend to shift like sand dunes. As Bush observed, quote, I know that these euphoric ratings, nothing like it since Truman after World War II, are nothing. They go away tomorrow. The euphoria is up there on the war, but when it wears off, we're going to be facing these humongous deficits, and the economy is still down, down, down. In fact, when he really thought about it, George Bush wasn't even sure if he wanted to run for president again at all. The basic thing is, I'm tired, he told his diary. So life goes on, and I'm thinking to myself at this moment, I'll probably get over it, but I want out. I want to go back to the real world. I want to get out of this. I want to walk into the drugstore, build a house in Houston, or teach at the library at A&M with less pressure. But amidst the fog of fatigue, there was something else weighing on the president's mind, a frustrating piece of unfinished business, and its name was Saddam Hussein. I don't feel euphoria, Bush wrote. Hitler is alive. Indeed, Hitler is still in office. And that's the problem. Three months earlier, on March 3, 1991, a ceasefire had gone into effect in the Persian Gulf. As the pilot Buck Windham wrote at the time, quote, Sometime during the night, I heard on the radio that General Schwarzkopf met with some Iraqi generals in a tent near Safwan, Iraq today. The Iraqis agreed to comply with all of the United Nations resolutions, and both sides signed a ceasefire agreement. It looks like the war is over. And as Schwarzkopf traded signatures with the chastened generals of the Iraqi army, the scale of the coalition's victory was still hard to believe. Operation Desert Storm had exceeded the expectations of even the most jingoistic optimists. Less than 150 Americans had been killed in action. By contrast, the Iraqi casualties numbered in the tens of thousands, and even more had been captured. Simply put, the international coalition had wiped the floor with the Iraqis. The formerly fourth-largest army in the world had been smeared across the highways, buried in the desert, or clapped in handcuffs. For old Vietnam vets like Norman Schwarzkopf, the Gulf War wasn't just a victory, it was a redemption. Vietnam had stained the reputation of the American military, and Kuwait had polished it to a brilliant brass shine once again. For Norman Schwarzkopf and his lieutenants, writes Rick Atkinson, this war had lasted not six weeks, but 20 years. In the West, the only real complaints came from the press corps, who were frustrated that it had all happened too fast. To them, it seemed like the ground war had ended before they could even sharpen their pencils or change their camera lenses. The trouble with this war, said one Washington Post editor, was that it was so fucking fast. The war was the largest armored movement in history, said another. 
And essentially, no one saw it. There are no pictures of it. There's nothing. But for the Iraqis, the ceasefire had come not a moment too soon. I'm sure that they ended the war when they did because of the turkey shoot outside Kuwait, wrote Nuha al-Radi. Too much gore, even for the eyes of television viewers, and bad publicity for the Allies. Saddam Hussein, on the other hand, was elated. With the swish of Schwarzkopf's pen, the pressure evaporated. The Americans' long leash had finally run out of slack. Saddam felt himself to be a great, great hero, one Iraqi intelligence officer remembered bitterly. He started to say, we won, we won, and his morale was from zero to a hundred. But Saddam quickly realized that he had bigger problems on his hands. The Americans may have sheathed their swords, but there were other knives emerging from the dark. As the writer Con Coughlin put it, quote, the greatest threat to Saddam's survival was not Operation Desert Storm, but the nationwide revolt that followed it. For once, Saddam's rhetorical flourishes made little impact on a nation driven to the depths of despair by the catastrophe that had been inflicted on it by his ill-conceived adventure in Kuwait. For the first time in Iraq's modern history, the people rose in strength against their despotic leader. End quote. I loved President Saddam, one woman in Baghdad told a journalist, but now I have hate in my heart for him. How can I not? There were six men in our family. My brother-in-law was killed in Kuwait. My two brothers are missing. My third brother is a prisoner of war in Iran. Our country is destroyed. And for what? Driven by decades of grievance, months of privation, and an hour-never sense of opportunity, Saddam's enemies came out of the shadows. The country exploded into a full-on revolt. It began in the Shia-dominated South, where army deserters and Shiite rebels joined hands in common cause to throttle Saddam's wobbly government. Not long after, the North erupted into rebellion. The Kurds, an ethnic group that Saddam had targeted with chemical weapons and treated with genocidal disdain, believed that now was their moment to secure a long-denied nation of their own, a Kurdistan. And as they mobilized for battle, the fighters clung to their rifles, their Qurans, and the words of one President George H.W. Bush. As recently as early March, Bush had urged the Iraqi people to, quote, put Saddam aside, and that by doing so, they would open the door to the, quote, acceptance of Iraq back into the family of peace-loving nations. Well, the rebels, particularly the Kurds in the north, heard those proclamations and assumed that they would have America's support in a war to overthrow Saddam Hussein. This was it. This was the moment. It was finally, finally happening. In the south, in the holy Shia city of Karbala, a T-72 tank fired a shell right through the eyes of a portrait of Saddam Hussein. The dictator's days appeared to be numbered. The rebels were very confident that they would have President Bush's support. But they were wrong. As Rick Atkinson writes, quote, In summoning the nation to war, Bush had described Saddam Hussein as, quote, worse than Hitler, and painted the conflict as a struggle between good and evil. But when it came to waging war against the new Hitler... The Allied armies, as it were, stopped at the Rhine. End quote. In the weeks to come, Iraqi hearts sank as the Bush administration clarified its position. Uh, we don't intend to get involved in Iraq's internal affairs, said White House spokesman Marlon Fitzwater. The bitter truth was the Kurds and the Shiites were just the wrong kinds of rebels. The Shiites had long been associated with the fundamentalist regime in Iran, so the U.S. was not exactly eager to help install a new government that would align with their old enemies in Tehran. And as for the Kurds, well, the Kurds were historically opposed to Turkey, 
which was a vital U.S. ally. We would have preferred a coup, admitted National Security Advisor Brent Snowcroft. I made clear from the very beginning, Bush told the press, that it was not an objective of the coalition or the United States to overthrow Saddam Hussein. So I don't think the Shiites in the South, those who are unhappy with Saddam in Baghdad, or the Kurds in the North ever felt that the United States would come to their assistance to overthrow this man. I have not misled anybody about the intentions of the United States of America, or has any other coalition partner, all of whom, to my knowledge, agree with me in this position. Well, some of the people in Iraq would have begged to differ. As a young man named Mustafa Aziz recalled, quote, They thought, we've got American backup. We've got the West's backup. We can do this. I mean, Saddam's weak. We've got the backup. People are willing to fight. Even some American soldiers did not agree with their commander-in-chief on leaving Iraq to its own devices. As Buck Wyndham wrote at the time, quote, There is still a huge, nagging hole in our hearts because we let Saddam go. Many of his Republican Guard troops have now retreated, and I'm sure they will regroup. I think we will someday regret not continuing this war for a few more weeks. End quote. Well, the Republican Guard, the elite core of the Iraqi army, did regroup. And their retribution against the Kurdish and Shiite rebels was ruthless even by Saddam's standards. In the holy city of Karbala, helicopter gunships, tanks, and infantry butchered the disorganized rebel militias with ease. Hundreds of people were summarily executed. And when Saddam's guys were done, the city looked like it had been, quote, hit by an earthquake, according to one journalist. And with the Shiite insurgency dismantled in the south, Saddam turned his eyes to the Kurds in the north. And in a matter of weeks, they too had been crushed. By the end of April, two million Kurdish refugees were crashing like waves against the borders of Iran and Turkey. The victorious allies, writes Khan Coughlin, who had only two months previously been toasting their triumph over Saddam, now had to deal with a humanitarian disaster for which they were mainly responsible. Backed by the UN Security Council Resolution 688, which authorized humanitarian organizations to aid the Kurds and banned Iraqi aircraft from flying north of the 36th parallel, the embarrassed allies launched Operation Provide Comfort, with transport aircraft and helicopters delivering tons of relief materials, including food, clothes, tents, and blankets. End quote. In the end, the 1991 uprisings failed. This had been their one big shot to overthrow the Iraqi dictator, and without American support, the moment had passed. The opportunity died on the vine, along with tens of thousands of Iraqi civilians. And many of those left alive blamed the U.S. just as much, if not more, than they blamed Saddam. As Nuha al-Radi wrote, quote, I have been saying all along that Bush and Saddam are alike. They both carried out their threats. They both bombed, and we burned. And now Bush is handing out medals. Soon he will be giving away cars as presents. His speeches are now studded with heavy, sycophantic clapping. History, I think, will not see Bush as a hero, but as a destroyer. I hope everybody who had a hand in this disastrous mess falls into the burning oil wells. End quote. Back in Baghdad, with his regime secure, Saddam Hussein enjoyed a well-deserved cigar and reflected on all that had happened. He'd done it. He'd actually pulled it off. His regime was nearly toppled by civil war, Baghdad was more of a crater than a capital, and the Iraqi army was a shadow of its former self, but by God, he'd done it. He'd survived, with all the power of all the nations of the Western world arrayed against him. With a citizenry that would sooner skin him than salute him, he had summoned all of his cruelty and cunning 
an improvisational genius to somehow, some way, stay in power. Saddam's name means one who confronts, and he'd been doing it all his life. He'd confronted bullies in his childhood town, he'd confronted rivals in the purges, and now he'd confronted the world's last superpower and lived to tell the tale. The ultimate irony of the Gulf War was that while Saddam Hussein's presidency would survive the trials and tribulations of 1991, George H.W. Bush's would not. Back in the United States, the dopamine rush of victory in the Gulf gave way to more material concerns. As the 1992 presidential election loomed, a combination of domestic factors swiftly deflated Bush's stratospheric popularity, just as he had predicted. As Americans went to the voting booths that fall, their minds were very, very far away from Iraq, Kuwait, and Saddam Hussein. Instead, they were more focused on high taxes, inflation, and Ross Perot. In the end, Bush lost the election. His Democratic challenger, Bill Clinton, won by a significant margin. At first, I had a feeling of a burden being lifted. Bush dictated late on election night. And then I saw the hurt in the kids. I mean, they're crying. And despite the private sense of relief, being a one-term president tends to sting. It was terrible, Bush later recalled. God, it was ghastly. Your whole life is based on trying to accomplish stuff and losing hurts. It hurt a lot. When asked what he was going to do now, Bush joked that his plan was to get, quote, very active in the grandchild business. It was not obvious at the time, but the geopolitical impact of the 1991 Gulf War was nothing short of seismic. Consequences of Desert Storm rippled outward in unimaginable ways, writes Jim Corrigan. The original deployment of U.S. troops to Saudi Arabia and their continued presence after the war was viewed by Islamic fundamentalists as a desecration of sacred soil. One wealthy and influential Saudi radical, who spent much of the 1980s fighting the Soviet occupation in Afghanistan, needed a new enemy to rally his followers. Osama bin Laden used the U.S. military presence to focus his newly formed al-Qaeda on the United States. And the rest is history. The subsequent attacks by bin Laden on the World Trade Center in September of 2001 served as a convenient excuse for another, much younger President Bush to settle old scores with Iraq's seemingly unkillable dictator. The results were nothing short of disastrous, not only for Iraq, but for the world. And as for Saddam, well, his long reign came to a close at the end of a rope. But that is a story for another day. It is worth noting, however, the words of one Dick Cheney in the spring of 1991. Back in those dewy days, as the Secretary of Defense, he urged the elder Bush, H.W., to absolutely not get embroiled in a Sisyphean struggle in Iraq. Exceeding their UN mandate and invading Saddam's home turf in an attempt to dethrone him would be nothing short of catastrophic. As Cheney said, quote, If we'd gone to Baghdad and got rid of Saddam Hussein, assuming we could have found him, We'd have had to put a lot of forces in and run him to ground someplace. He would not have been easy to capture. Then you've got to put a new government in his place, and then you're faced with the question of what kind of government are you going to establish in Iraq? Is it going to be a Kurdish government or a Shiite government or a Sunni government? How many forces are you going to have to leave there to keep it propped up? How many casualties are you going to take through the course of this operation? Well, ten years later, Cheney felt a bit differently. He was, of course, instrumental in orchestrating the second war against Iraq in 2003, which helped uncork, well, all of this. But like I said, that is a different story for a different day. 
As we wrap up this series, I want to give the last word to someone who is not a president or a politician or a dictator or a soldier. I'd like to give it to Nuha al-Radi, the woman in Baghdad who's been our glimpse into what life was like there during the Gulf War. The conflict in Kuwait seemed to have cured her of any naivete about the world. She resented the U.S. for bombing her home, but she could not ignore her country's role in the crisis. She was of two minds about it all, deeply torn. Quote, Perhaps I simply couldn't believe that in this day and age leaders could be so childish or plain stupid as to think that war could solve any issue. I underestimated the destructive instincts of man and the agenda of the forces allied against us. Not that we are angels. After all, we did the first wrong. But one cannot rectify one wrong by another of even bigger proportions. At least, that's what I thought. This has been Conflicted. Thanks for listening. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.